So we're delighted to welcome Dr. Navina Evans to the Leading Insights podcast. Navina is the former Chief Executive of the East London Foundation Trust and is newly appointed as the Chief Executive of Health Education England. Thanks for your time today, Navina. Thank you. So could you tell us a little bit about your career so far? Yes, of course. Um, I started off as my career as a doctor and I trained in London and um, I became a child and adolescent psychiatrist and I went into clinical practice um, and I took uh, interest in management and leadership because the organisation I worked in encouraged clinical leaders to get involved in running of services and the running of the organisation. And that's really how I got into sort of management and leadership um, at the sort of team level, at the service level, and then at an organisational level. Quite interesting, my career went towards the operations route as opposed to a medical director um, route, um, which I was really fortunate to get that chance. They don't come up very often. Um, And then from there, I went on to become the chief executive of a foundation trust delivering services uh, in England. And then most recently, I moved to Health Education England because I had a Uh, interest in workforce, in people, um, and the development of workforce and cultures of organisations. So I took this opportunity when it came up and it wasn't really planned, but I'm really delighted to be in Health Education England. So you've talked about the fact that the organisation that you were working in was encouraging clinicians to move into those sorts of roles. Was was the operations route happenstance, or was it was it something that you've always been interested in, as opposed to the medical director route? Yeah, so I went into the operations route because the chief executive at the time was very interested in bringing clinicians and operations closer together, um, and he felt that there was too much of you know doctors on the one side saying commenting on what was wrong with the way things were being run um, and, you know, not really engaging in fixing it, uh, the the problems. Um, So that was an idea that he had. um, And so he created these clinical director roles and I went into that to start off with. Um, And then it was actually a bit of a trial for me, an experiment into whether or not a doctor should do an operations role. So it started off as a secondment opportunity Um, So it just sort of happened and it evolved. Um, And then when the role was actually formally advertised, I went for it. Was it a really steep learning curve or did you feel that your experience as a doctor stood you in good stead for that? So I think that your your experience as a doctor is far, it prepares you uh, to be a manager in far greater ways than most doctors think. And I heard lots of doctors say things like, oh, I didn't become a doctor to to be a manager. You know, my priority is patient care. Um, and that's a, that actually, as a doctor, you are a manager. You manage uh, your team, you manage your service, you manage the pathway for a single patient or a group of patients, you manage things for a whole condition. So I think that's a little bit of a kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's, it, people are, need to think more widely about the role of the doctor. So, um, so it's, it's really interesting. Did I find it difficult? There was a lot to learn, but it's not as difficult as you think it is. You know, people think that you have to know a lot about finance. Well, most of us 
run our own finances in our homes, in our families. <laughs> we manage to use those principles and you learn, you learn about things. Uh, the other thing is also making sure that you connect with other parts of the service, with nursing, with HR, with procurement, with estates. Um, and, you know, you make those connections. And finally, I'd say the important thing is knowing what you don't know and asking for help. Following our year as uh, Scottish Clinical Leadership Fellows, Kate and I were lucky enough to visit the East London Foundation Trust and we met with your Head of People Participation, Paul Binfield. Yes. We were both completely amazed at the level of people participation and co-design within the services. People were often scared of asking their service users for feedback, let alone participation. How was it that you helped promote this work? And what have you learned personally from your involvement with service users and their participation? So we developed over the years this whole concept of people participation. And it, it has taken a long time. And it moved from patient involvement, feedback, surveys, patient experience, and to really truly involving carers and patients in our business, in service delivery. And um, now I think that organization, I'm no longer there, of course, are moving into the true space of co-production, um, which is, again, another step. Um, and I think Paul and others would say that um, you take well, sort of one step forward, two steps back, three steps forward, one step back. That's the journey um, in doing this. And some of the barriers are, I think we're afraid of admitting to our patients um, that actually we don't always know the answers, that we get things wrong, that we make mistakes. And one of the things I found really, really uh, liberating and it amazed me was how generous patients, carers are towards us, that they genuinely want to work with us to make things better. And they really want to help, not just us as um, providers, but other patients and other users of our services. The final thing, which I thought was really touching and uh, moving and so helpful, was that our patients and carers really care about the well-being of staff because they get it. They know that if staff are treated well and are happy, they will, they will be better looked after. Yeah, one of my favourite stories was hearing about how one of the uh, team from the people partic participation was uh, actually chairing the meetings and things. And yeah. we've all we've all experienced meetings in the last six months that are, can go off piste and can go yeah. down. Whereas this person was so talented at just keeping back yeah. to the focus yeah. of the patient and what yeah. the meeting was actually about. It was wonderful yeah. to hear. Really wonderful. Well, yeah. I found having the patient in the room uh, at any kind of meeting really helpful. Um, and it's really important not to have a sort of tokenistic uh, effort to stab at it, um, which also means, therefore, that you have to treat the patient representative or the carer, um, you know, as an equal partner and that they have a voice and they need to um, make sure that they have access to understanding what this is all about. People are paid. People are expected to you know, contribute in a, in a kind of quite demanding way. So it's, it, that is really important. I've also found that 
if I'm going to a meeting where we're having to discuss something really rather difficult with colleagues and with professionals and with clinicians, having the patient in the room changes the behavior. It really makes you remember what you're there for. And it stops you, not entirely, but it, it can help to stop you from retreating to um, siloed positions, uh, safeguarding your own interests, whether that's professional or organizational, because the patient sort of says, well, hang on a minute, you know, your behavior is not helping me. And that position you're taking is actually going to make things worse for me and the people that you're supposed to serve. And that's incredibly powerful. Yeah, the, I mean, the stories that we heard from Paul Binfield sounded absolutely transformational for the service, but also for the patients and the way yep. that they actually help their recovery. Yeah. We all have ideas for how we can improve how this is done in our organisation, but there's always people who are really worried and concerned yeah. and the kind of laggards. How Did you come up against that? And if so, how did you deal with it? Yes, of course. Um, there's always going to be people who are worried um, and, um, and we get quite frustrated with them, especially, you know, if you've got a great idea and you think it will work and you know it can work because you've seen it and you've got the evidence for it. It's very frustrating when you see people who, you know, say that, oh, yes, but, oh, well, it might work there, but we're different. Oh, no, no, no. Our patients are much more unwell or, you know, all the reasons, the hundreds of reasons why things can't happen. Um, that's always going to be there. And um, I think it's important to remember I've been there myself where I've been either sceptical or reluctant or I like the way things are now. I don't want to change. So I think it's really important to remember and try and connect with why those people feel the way they feel and try and work with whatever their anxieties and fears are. And most of the time people come on come on side. And sometimes you just have to say, well, actually, we'll leave that little group for a little while and we'll focus on the people who are closer to making the change um, and then come back and revisit with others. Um, I think what I found using the QI methodology and improvement methodology and the science of improvement uh, and focusing on the, the sort of common sense, the evidence having very rational conversations with people, using data, 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 in a way that helps to explain what's happening, Bring, bringing the data alive with stories. I love stories. I think they bring data alive. Um, all of that really helps to move in the right direction. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slow process. And as I said earlier, sometimes you take a few steps forward, and then you take a couple of steps back and then you have to you have to keep going at it. East London Foundation Trust strategy, which launched in 2018 during your time as CEO, yep. is presented in a, a driver diagram forms. So it's very visual uh, with, and it's got a global mission to improve the quality of life for all we serve. Work in the NHS can be all consuming with little time or headspace for improvement or even to think of the long-term vision. How did you develop a culture that embeds quality improvement across the whole organisation such that you then include a, you know, a QI tool like a driver diagram in your strategy and keep it very visual? 
So um, it, it, it took a long time and it's a concerted, relentless effort and it still goes on. And um, we're still, you know, there's in the, in the world of um, embedding or learning about QI, you start with building the will. And I think you make the mistake if you think that, oh, we've done the building the will phase, we've moved on. You're, it's a con continuous drumbeat of building the will because new people join an organization and need to come on board. But even those of us who have been on board, sometimes we sort of think, oh, I don't know if this is working. Um, and the temptation is to revert back to old style command and control, performance management, especially during COVID. So you have to continuously feed people around the importance of improvement. Um, the thing about our strategy um, and the development of connecting, um, uh, making our mission improving quality of life, that came loud and clear from listening to our service users and also our staff, because our staff said to us, um, they are in the room with the patient every day. And it's all very well, the patient saying, yes, my diabetes, my blood sugars are better controlled. My pressure also is healing. Um, I don't hear voices anymore, you know, but my life is still pretty awful. So, you know, my nurse or my doctor or my care coordinator, you can't really go away and tick that box and say, you've done a good job because actually my life is still pretty awful. And so we had to wake up to the fact that our staff also felt it's not very rewarding if you have to face that kind of conversation. Um, so we thought, well, why, why not? Um, who's to say we can't be in the business of, you know, interfering in systems uh, that, that make sure that people's quality of life is what we're all coming together. Then, fortunately, um, the ICS kind of framework, you know, integrated care systems, the long-term plan, the five-year forward view in the NHS, all those things started to also point to the fact that we had to work differently across organizations um, to really get proper change in population health and um, get good value from, for, you know, for our money in terms of supporting people in healthcare. Have there been any personal hurdles that you've overcome in this amazing career that you've had so far? Personal hurdles that I've overcome? I think I've been very fortunate to have a lot of support and that when I have sort of ideas for change, uh, people trust me enough to listen and try things out. I think I'm very aware that, you know, as, as a woman and minority, you know, it hasn't been all that easy. You have to work extremely hard and everybody works hard, but there are additional kind of additional barriers and additional obstacles to overcome. But on the, on the other side is that I have always had really good support to, to enable me to take on extra uh, responsibilities and, and roles. So, you know, being really positive and always looking for those opportunities. I don't see hurdles and barriers as things that stop me from doing things. And I don't think they should stop anybody. I've been thinking recently about being like, you know, like water, you know, find the cracks on the wall or the roof <laughs> and get in there. And, and then you see me as a little puddle on your ceiling. Um, 
rather than you know trying to trying to push at things head on. It's maybe a bit, you know, it's it's topical just now with COVID and you know the thoughts of uh, as we face the winter pressures as well as COVID. But I, I'm I'm going to add on a layer of that keeping at a whole systems level, that enthusiasm and a drive for change and improvement. How do you keep up your own positivity, your own resilience through all of that? How is how do you keep coming back to, you know, beat that drama and, and try and keep, because all the endeavours that you're telling us about has taken many years. How do you keep up the positivity? Yeah, so I think the positivity is because I think it's really important to look for the positives. Um, and that you know every single day, if you um, you think about it, you will see little changes that make a huge difference. There are so many good stories, good news stories, to celebrate um, people uh, with very little power and people with very little resources sometimes making big differences. So I tend to gravitate towards those kinds of stories and then I'm very very curious about what makes them happen and in the end what makes them happen is usually the people involved and relationships and trust and authenticity and you know the desire to make a difference Um, which is why I'm really excited to be in Health Education England Um, because it is about influencing the workforce and planning for the future. The NHS is a remarkable thing. You know, so many thousands of people wanting every day to be involved in uh, making things better, faced against with, with all sorts of barriers and obstacles and silly things that get in the way. And yet um, there's something hugely rewarding about being part of this movement. Um, which, um, which, which I'm really, I love being part of it. Now, this is a tr- this is a tricky question, you because you worked for the East London Foundation Trust for over 25 years. I did. Four of those years as CEO. Now, a number of our listeners, especially during COVID, they will have got new experiences and they'll now maybe be considering new career opportunities. How how was it that you approached that? Because obviously you've been with one organisation and it's yeah. all comes your family how is it that you you approach that phase in this this transition from one role to another at this stage of your career so um so I think even though I worked in in the the same organization for 25 years it wasn't actually that organization so the organization had transformed over the 25 years it's very different uh, now from the one it was when I started. So that's the first thing to say. So I think in some ways I could cheat and say that I, I actually worked in, in different organisations. <laughs> you know. uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I think um, I took on different roles. So, you know, I talked about the clinical role and then the operations role. and So it's like you're going into a new job every every time and you do have to treat it like that. Um, so 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 that's the that's the other thing to say. And then I think I actually, I think it's really important for everybody to have a kind of personal development plan. So as part of your appraisal process, you you need to, everyone needs to think about, you know, what's my next, what's my next, even if it is retirement, um, you want to retire well. So, you know, you've got to think, um, what am I going to do before? What's my legacy? That sort of thing. 
And included in a personal development plan, I think, is your own succession plan. So again, who are you growing um, to, to step up? And that should be many people, you know, not having a favorite uh, that's going to be that I'm going to kind of pass the baton on to, but many people. And then also maybe even beyond your organization, how do you support the system to grow people who could come into what you're doing? And that's kind of like in medicine, we, we almost have that built in because of the way in which, you know, you, the doctor's training ends up being towards a consultant job. So, so for me, that's sort of how I always thought about things. Um, the Health Education England opportunity just came to me probably earlier than I would have thought. It, it kind of arrived and uh, we had the conversations and I went through the process. And when I started the conversation, I didn't think that I was the sort of person um, an arm's length body would want but I guess we're in different times. And so this arm's length body was looking for slightly different kind of um, chief executive. Um, so it's kind of a bit right time, right place, I guess. Was there anything particularly about HEE that really attracted you? Yeah. So the thing about HEE that really attracted me is, is that it's all about people and it's all about growing a workforce and it's about workforce of the future. And it also gives me the opportunity to uh, really think about, you know, young people today and what they'll be doing for this amazing movement, which is in healthcare in 20 or 30 years time. Um, and I also keep asking, I keep telling myself, you know, when I'm 80, I want to be able to look back and think that I did something in health education England and whoever it is who's looking after me as an 85-year-old with the multi, my multidisciplinary team around me, and I'll be thinking, oh, I had something to do with, you know, how wonderful you are today because we did all this work however many years ago. I'm not going to say because then you'll know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about uh, back to yourself as a, a young new doctor, like the, the new doctors that, that you're going to be looking after now, is there any advice that you would uh, give yourself now? Um, yes, yes, definitely. So um, one of the things that worries me is that I do hear about um, young doctors feeling disillusioned. So that's, that worries me. The second thing is that I have friends who are doctors uh, who have children and they say things like, oh, I'm never going to, I don't want my kids to go into medicine. It's a terrible thing, it's terrible, terrible. I don't want them to do that. I think that's very sad as well. And then the third thing that makes me a little bit sad is that there is evidence, um, and Steve Svensson talks about this uh, in research, that actually burnout of doctors begins, this is terrible, begins in medical school. So for me, I think I would say whatever you have, you have to pay attention to that bit of you that loves being part of healthcare, whether it's the NHS or something else in, in the future, that bit of you that loves it, hold on to it, make it bigger, look after it. That's the bit that you have to really hang on to because it's really tough and it will get tougher and there'll be lots of stuff that frustrates you, but you need to always keep going back to that bit that made you love it in the first place. And was it for you, what was that for you? 
what's coming across loudly is your care for others and care for helping others develop. Is that what attracted you to medicine in the first place? So what 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 did it for me was 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 pe- the people that I hundreds and hundreds of patients and their parents or their families and my colleagues and uh, friends that I've made through work. So it's about the people, and you know I could tell you so many wonderful stories, that funny stories or sad stories or touching stories or moving stories about interactions that I've had with patients, junior doctors, trainees, nurse colleagues, managers, my old chief exec, um, you know, and those are the things that I think enrich, um, well, my, enrich my, my life experience, people and characters. That's why I love to read novels. It's like we were saying earlier, you know, there's there's nothing like the experiences of working in a hospital, the ups and downs to create a completely different kind of relationship, which is... Every, everyone who works in healthcare will have some, a whole library of funny stories and they'll all be about little quirky, quirky things about people. And that's lovely. That's lovely to be able to say that's your work, that's your life's work. Do you, do you think you mentioned the work with Steve Swenson and the burnout starting very early on at university and things? Kate and I have talked about this. You know, we we are finishing consultant training at this stage, and and even some of our peers and things have had exams uh, cancelled, postponed, our training has been delayed and things. But then when we look back and see those that are graduating at these times, we've can't help but feel even more sorry for them with COVID and in your new role at HEE what do you think we can be doing for those that are either at a university just now or are graduating into a pandemic yeah so if I could just pick up on on something you just said you said you feel even more sorry for them um so I I I'd like for all of us who are there to support them to not think so much about the bits that make us feel sorry for them, but but focus on the bits that actually are exciting for them. And, you know, the future is going to be so different for them. And it's a bit like, um, you know, when I was a junior doctor, I'm going to be, do one of those stories. <laughs> when I was a junior doctor, you know, we did a one in two on call and we had to sleep on a camp bed on the ward and, and all those horrible stories, okay? Um, and it got better. It got better for the, the future generations of doctors. And some, some things are not so good that got lost and some things that... So, so I think that it's about... Um, so when I've, I've met the medical students who ended up having to go into support COVID treatments and stuff like that, we, HEE helped, helped that to happen. And so many of them were so thrilled and excited by what they were able to do. Um, and to build on that really is kind of where I think so it's building on what's positive and what you can change and again that comes back to the sort of improvement science and the improvement way of thinking which is you know you have more power and control than you think you have to to change to make positive change but you have to target your energy on where change is possible um comes back to being like water again you know being where it's possible to get into and well Water, water damages things, but you know what I mean. Uh, maybe positive disruption is, uh, yeah. So I think that's, that's we need to focus our energy on what we can build on as opposed to 
what's just impossible to tackle. At the end of every episode, we ask who we're speaking to in another life, what would they like to have been? Now, we've had ballerinas, opera singers, choristers, the, the works. <laughs> what would you, if, if you hadn't have gone down your career pathway, what would you, you have liked to have done? You know, I want to have a shop. <laughs> <laughs> I want to have a shop that sells books. Wonderful. <laughs> Lovely. A lot of so I'm a dentist, and a lot of dentists, their secret thing was they'd love to own a sweetie shop. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a particular particular genre that you would specialise in, or no? I, I I just I I love all forms of reading, even the sort that I'm not particularly interested in, because I think the whole um, the whole experience of of reading and losing yourself in a kind of another world, whatever that is, um, is just too wonderful. And um, so I'd encourage any kind of, you know, what's considered lowbrow, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Thank Nami. you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.